Well, what a joy it is for me to be with you this morning. Thank you for the wonderful greeting that you all have extended to my family and to me. And actually, it started, well, it started long ago, but it started for us last night as we arrived in the hotel room. We opened the door, and there were two ginormous gift baskets with goodies. And boy, our kids' eyes got really big when they saw that. And a very thoughtful note, thank you for that. What an honor it is to be with you. You know that this congregation is like, everybody's jealous of you in the most wonderful way, most Christian way. Because you hear on a regular basis, Neil Pollard and Hiram Kemp. And, and I'm thinking, they want me to come and preach? What am I doing here? I have benefited from the teachings and the example of Neil and Kathy Pollard for a long time, particularly in uh, events like polishing the pulpit, writings, books, and things like that. And uh, what an honor it is to get to be here with them. And then Hiram and Brittany are very dear friends of ours. We're close in age with them. We try and keep them as humble as possible on a regular basis. Uh, and of course, I appreciate them very much. More than just the fact that these two preachers are very well known, I appreciate their ability and the desire that they each have to make it be about Jesus and not about themselves. It's not about making a name. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, if anybody's going to boast, let him boast in the Lord. And that is what it's all about. Preachers love to be around preachers. But this week I'm looking forward as well to being around all of you. And please help me and forgive me if I forget your name from one day to the next. Uh, but I, I'm looking forward to getting to spend some time with you and getting to know you throughout this week together. If you're a guest in this assembly this morning, we have planned this week with you in mind. Now, if you regularly worship here, we're hopeful that the things that we discuss can strengthen our faith and can help us as we try and live for Jesus. But if you're a guest today, we're not going to single you out. We don't want to embarrass you. But we want you to hear these messages. We want you to know that they're for you. And Lehman Avenue people... If you want to invite folks throughout this week, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, the Lord willing, we have planned these sermons with our friends and our neighbors in mind. Are God's promises for me? This is the first of six questions throughout the next four days that we're going to ask together and seek to give a biblical answer. Now, in a word, the answer to each of these questions is Jesus. And that's why we've titled our series this week, Jesus is the Answer. And at the end of our time together this morning in our sermon, I want us to see how Jesus is the answer to this question. But to help us to answer it and to feel personally that God's promises are mine, I want to take us to the 139th Psalm. Do you have your Bibles open there? Psalm 139. According to the inscription, that is the little uh, piece of information preceding verse 1 that's in most of our copies of the Bible, you'll see that this is a Psalm of David. That, that's a tradition 
that's been added, but it's a very old tradition. In fact, I've even read that perhaps uh, these traditions were already established when the time when Jesus was on earth. Okay, so it is ancient Jewish tradition that David is the inspired writer of the 139th Psalm. And in it, he really delineates for us the nature of God. He talks about who God is, and in so doing, he helps us in a way that the Psalms wonderfully do, to know God and to feel closer to God. But one thing I love about the 139th Psalm, in addition to the fact that it helps me to feel closer to God and to know God better, is that this Psalm is, at the very same time, deeply personal. Let's begin by reading together the first six verses. The psalmist says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted, he says, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. As we begin in the first six verses, I think that we see that God knows everything. I mean, if we're talking theologically, we might use this term that we find a lot in churchy circles and academic circles. He is omniscient. That is to say, he is all-knowing. God knows everything. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. The the term searched translates a term that that talks about thorough examination, uh, complete. And yet, you know, if I'm trying to have a complete or a thorough knowledge of a particular subject, that is only going to come with great effort to me. I'm going to really have to dig in, spend a lot of time. And, you know, I can only read and study and research for so long before my rather small and humble brain hits a wall and I have to take a break for a while, step back, and then return to it later. But, you know, for God to have a thorough knowledge requires no effort on his part. God is completely thoroughly acquainted with us. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Okay, it is uh, 10.07 this morning. How many times have you gotten up and sat down so far today? Well, several, just in this worship service, right? (laughs) I don't know. I don't keep track of that kind of thing. God knows. Even the common casual tasks, God knows. You discern my thoughts from afar. You know, even from heaven, his knowledge is intimate. He knows what I do, and he knows why I do what I do. He knows when I sit down and rise up, but he also knows my thoughts, the thoughts that motivate my actions. And I'm comforted then by the fact that God never misjudges me. He knows exactly why I did the things that I did. You know, sometimes as humans, we we struggle with judging people and unrighteous judgment looks like this. I look at what somebody's doing and I assign motives to what they've done. I know why they did what they did. It's kind of like David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. You know, when David is sent by his father Jesse down to the battlefield and when his older brother Eliab sees what it is that David is doing and sees that David is there, he says, why have you come? I know why you've come down here. You just want to see all the action. And it sort of has this air about him of like, you want to see what the big boys are up to. Where did you leave those sheep? 
Why don't you go back with your little sheep and do your little shepherd thing, and us men are going to be here fighting, actually cowering in fear as Goliath is taunting the Israelites one day after another, right? We assign motives. God doesn't do that. God never misjudges me. God is acquainted with all my ways. He knows when I get up in the morning and when I go to bed in the evening. Everything, he says at the end of verse 4, you know all together. God knows everything, but look at how personal this is. God not only knows everything, God knows everything about me. God knows everything about you. You have searched me. You have known me. This is personal. It's not just that God knows it all. That, that's, a, that's a neat fact, right? And sometimes we do this when we talk about God and his nature. I suppose it's because God is so other than. He's so different than I am. But God chooses to know me. And can we even say, God knows me better than I know myself? What's the running count that you have on the number of hairs on your head? For some of us, it's less today than it used to be. All right? I'll have to wear a hat when I do yard work because otherwise the sun will burn my bald spot that I'm growing back here. God knows all of that information. And it's not just that trite stuff. I mean, that, that's a neat thought. But, of course, Jesus says that even the number of our hairs, uh, God knows the, the, the number of our hairs because he's trying to demonstrate God cares about you. He knows you. He loves you. So verse 5, you protect me. You surround me behind and before you lay your hand on me. You know, you can't outrun God. I can't run faster than God. You know, Jonah tries to do that. God is in front of me. He's before me. But God is also behind me. I can't drop back and lose God. You know, he's always there. Lay your hand on me. When our children were younger, fun fact, our kids didn't sleep through the night for the first two years of their lives, okay? That's four years of our lives that we lost, all right? I don't remember those days. But I do remember this. When one of them was crying, you'd walk in there and lean over the crib and fall asleep leaning over it, you know, and you put your hand on them. And that warmth, that, that touch, that physical contact was enough often, not always, to soothe and to lull back to sleep. You know what happens? As soon as you remove it, you know, well, we're back to square one again. But anyway, this says, God, you lay your hand on me to know that God is always with us. There's a promise that God has made that's reiterated throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. The Hebrew writer puts it in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 like this, Quoting from the Old Testament, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he uses this negative construction to, to really emphasize the point that there's never a time when God will desert us. Sure, we may desert God, but God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God doesn't drop back. God doesn't stop. And so the psalmist says in verse 6, this is too wonderful for me. It's beyond my understanding. 
It's high. I cannot attain it. You see, in ministry, one of the things that I come across a lot is this mindset among people that, yes, okay, I get it. God says these things. God says, I know all about you. God says, I love you. God says, I care about you. That part we don't have a trouble or difficulty knowing. What we have often trouble comprehending is the fact that God is willing to do those things for me. That God loves me. Notice how personal the psalmist makes it here in the 139th Psalm. He knows you. He knows everything about you. And that's not given in the sense of you better watch everything you do. Although that's true. It's, it's given in a comforting sense. God's with me. He knows me. Even David says, I don't really know what to do with all this. This is a little too high for me. But I'm comforted by it. God knows everything. And he knows everything about me. All right, number two. We come to verses 7 through 12, and we see emphasized in this particular text that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? I think these are parallel terms. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, people have tried ever since the fall. You go back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And the very first question that we hear from God, or among the first, is this. Where are you, Adam? You know, Adam and Eve have sinned by eating the fruit that was forbidden. Eve, deceived by Satan, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, took and ate, gave it to her husband also, and he did eat. And then, I don't know what this means, they hear God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. I wish I knew more, but I don't. Hiram can explain it to us later. And God says, where are you? Now, God never asks questions for information. He knows everything, right? God only asks questions for contemplation. Adam, what have your decisions done to make you to where you're hiding from me? God is everywhere. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. See, the point that he's trying to make in the the next few statements is that nowhere is off limits to God. If I go as high as I can possibly go, God is there. Yesterday, we were flying back from Denver. And I love, you know, some people don't like to open the window. I like to open the window on an airplane, you know, and look out and see. And wow, last night, at sunset as we were coming into Nashville, that was beautiful. And to see it from an above-the-clouds perspective was even better. And I'm reminded, God's there. I sure am thankful, too. They start talking about 30,000 plus feet above where I'm supposed to be. You know, I'm thankful God is there. He says in the rest of the verse, verse 8, if I make my bed in, some translations say hell. The ESV from which I'm reading says Sheol. This is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek term Hades. We're talking about the Hadean realm or the realm of disembodied spirits. This is the holding area, so to speak, of where spirits go when they depart from the body. James says the body without the spirit is dead. All right, so when the body is dead, the soul or the spirit has gone to wait in the realm of Hades or the Hebrew term Sheol. According to Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, this has two compartments, right? We have paradise and torment. And this is the area where souls go to await 
the judgment day, the sentencing day. The point seems to be, if I ascend as far up as I can, God's still there. If I go as far down as I can, God is still there. If I take the wings of the morning, this seems to be an expression that uh, is referencing going as far east as I can go, because the sun rises in the east, right? And so if I go as far east as I can go, God's there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, all right, from the perspective of Palestine, the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. So the thought is this, up, down, east, west. It doesn't matter how extreme I go in one direction or the other. Even there, verse 10, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. God's everywhere. And as David makes it personal, he says, God is everywhere I am or will be. This is is personal. It doesn't matter where I go. God is there. It gets really personal to me in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night. I suppose we could interpret this in two ways. First, perhaps we could assume that here's an individual who wants to be covered. Maybe they're trying to do something in secrecy, Maybe I think I'm going to be hidden, but even then he's going to say in verse 12, the darkness is not dark to you. Jesus, I guess, makes that point in John chapter 3, doesn't he? He says, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You know, if you're asleep in a nice dark room and somebody comes in and turns the light on, you don't really appreciate that, do you? You sort of wish they wouldn't have done that. Sometimes we can grow comfortable in darkness Morally speaking, spiritually speaking. And we don't appreciate it when somebody comes in and turns on the light, exposing the deeds that we've done. But I could also see us interpreting this in another fashion as well. The darkness shall cover me. This term, I've done some research, it's used about four times in the Old Testament. In addition to here, we find it in Genesis 3.15, when the first messianic prophecy is made. God to the serpent says that you will bruise his, the seed of woman, referring to Jesus. You'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And that same word, crush, is translated cover here in verse 11. It's also used in the book of Job, Job 9.17, bruise. If I say, this darkness is crushing me. You know when you're sick, how kind of start feeling a little better during the day but then when it starts getting dark you start feeling worse again why why is it like that you know I mean all day I've got other things that can distract me but at night all I've got are infomercials right I mean sickness is always worse at night at least for me maybe it's a man flu thing I don't know you know they say that women can do sickness better than men can whatever all right darkness Think about a less trite example, but a period of darkness in your life. A time when you can't see a way out. You don't know how this is going to end. You're trying to trust God. God, I know you're going to get me through this, but right now I can't see the way. And in the moment, the darkness feels crushing. And we start asking questions like, God, why? God, 
How long? When will you deliver me from this? And after a while, in prolonged darkness like that, a trial of life, our faith can be tested. We begin to wonder, is God still with me? The psalmist responds, even the darkness is not dark to you. For the night is bright as the day. Darkness is as light with you. God is everywhere. He's everywhere I am or will be. In November of 2020, astronaut Victor Glover was a part of the very first SpaceX Crew Dragon operational flight to the International Space Station. I found out about this by reading an article in the Christian Chronicle about Glover. Because Glover is a member of the Lord's Church. And among the things that Glover had sent ahead of him to the space station was his copy of God's Word and enough communion supplies to last him his duration on the space station. He noted, of course this was November of 2020, he said, you know, we've kind of gotten used to this virtual thing in terms of worship. And he was already used to the little, you know, bring your own portable communion supplies. And he says, we got pretty good internet up there on the space station. He was planning each Lord's Day to continue tuning in to the local congregation in Texas where he regularly worshipped. And to do that even from space. Glover knows God is everywhere. He is everywhere I am or will be. All right, in the next place and quickly, picking up with verse 13, we see that God is all-powerful. We'll say omnipotent. God is all-powerful. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Let's pause here. We can already see how personal this is to the psalmist. He not only says that God is all-powerful, he says God is all-powerful and I'm his. He made me. I belong to him. You formed my inward parts, the innermost part of who I am. You knitted me together when I was in my most secret condition in my mother's womb. You know, we use special technology these days to see that picture that looks like the psychological ink blot. You know what I'm saying? You ever seen that on TV or a movie? They'll hold it up and say, what does this look like to you? All right, well, that's kind of was my experience when they showed me the ultrasound for the first time. They said, this is the head. I said, oh, okay. It all looks the same to me, but I, I'm going to trust you on this one. Later, though, boy, they flipped a switch, and they did this 4D thing, and we could see the nose, the eyes, the mouth, as long as baby was cooperating, you know. And you think, wow, there's a human in there. That's a child. And look, he already looks like his mama, you know, or whatever. You formed me, and I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Notice he says, it's my body, you made me, and yet I am the work of your hands. Wondrous are your works. My soul knows it very well. You know, this is the reason why Christians are so passionate in defending unborn life. Hey, listen, I'm not trying to get political here, but frankly, this isn't a political issue. This is a moral issue. 
an issue that God has settled long ago. And here's what the psalmist says about it. The inhabitant of the womb is formed by God. That baby, he or she, is a gift from God. My frame, the Christian Standard Bible, verse 15, says, My bones were not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Depths of the earth, a metaphor for the deep, concealed places. Intricately woven, complex patterns and colors like a weaver or an embroiderer, putting these things together to create something beautiful. And that's exactly what God is doing according to the pen of the psalmist with that baby that has yet been born. Verses 16 and 17, he says, Your eyes saw me even when there was nothing to see. In your book were written every one of the deeds, every one of the things that I would do. You wrote about me even before there was anything about which to write. God, you know all about me. God is all-powerful, and I'm his. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. I cannot, verse 18, even begin to comprehend them. In fact, they're more than the sand And I think he's saying there at the end of verse 18 that when I try and get my mind around the thoughts of God, it just exhausts me. And then later I awake and I'm still with you. I'm still in your presence. God, you're still just going right along. You're still all powerful, even in my exhaustion. Finally, this morning, we've seen that God is all knowing. He knows everything about me. That God is everywhere and he's everywhere I am or will be. God is all-powerful, and I'm his. And finally, as we round out the 139th Psalm, we see that God is all-holy. And as we make application personally, God is all-holy, and I want to be holy too. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, he says in 19. O men of blood, violent men, depart from me. Notice that David has a desire to be near to God and separated from the wicked. And that's what holiness is, right? I want to be separated. I want to be set apart in God's service. And of course, to be near to God means that I'm going to be away from wickedness, from evil, from sin. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Push a pause button there. Sometimes we might think, especially as New Testament Christians, it's weird that David would say something like that. I think what we see is a zeal that David has for God. The New Testament teaches us how to direct that zeal for God, not in expressing hatred toward another, although, you know, hey, listen, what what David is doing here is he's just speaking frankly. He doesn't hate the people, I would hope, but he hates the actions that the, in which they are involved. Jesus teaches us, as do the writers after him, that while we love everyone, we certainly must call out sin. And David says, listen, God, I'm with you, and therefore your enemies are my enemies. The people who will set themselves against you are also setting themselves against me. And Jesus says, listen, don't be surprised when the world hates you. John corroborates that in 1 John. The world hates him, and therefore it will hate us. David continues, Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This is an expression of loyalty to God by opposition of God's enemies. And so David says, Listen, God, I want to be yours. 
And if people are going to set themselves against you, they're going to set themselves against me too. So in verses 23 and 24, he invites God, search me, O God, know my heart. Now in verse 1, he's already said, God, you have searched me and known me. But now he's inviting God to do that. God, please expose within me anything that is less than what it should be. It's as if David is putting himself in the crucible. He doesn't want sin to remain in him. This is a strong statement. Sometimes we avoid the discomfort of being exposed in our sin and our hypocrisies when we're less than who God desires us to be. That's not David here in 139. God, I want to be yours so desperately that whatever's amiss in my life, please reveal it. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Are God's promises for me? The psalmist certainly knew that God, while he is all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful, and completely holy, while those things are true, and absolutely they are, God wishes for me to know that, and God wishes for me to know that those characteristics of God are directed in a very personal way to me. God knows everything about me. God is all-powerful, and I'm His. God is everywhere that I am or will be. God is all-holy, and I want to be holy too. You know that this book isn't just a book of facts and figures. Yes, memorize John 3.16. Let's memorize it. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. Let's know all these facts, but let's be sure that when the time is right, I know as children, maybe we need to learn the facts and then later we'll understand the practical significance and how those apply and mean something deep to our faith and to our lives. This morning, David's taking us right there. He's showing us. This has practical significance for my everyday life. So when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, he means that. And he means it deeply. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He means that. And he means it personally for you and for me. And this morning, when we say, or when we sing, as we did a moment ago, that His grace reaches me. We're communicating a biblical truth that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So today, as we remind us of heaven's invitation, it's something that we extend to every one of us in this room, and yet it's something that is extremely 
personal. Jesus invites you, he invites me, to examine myself as you do yourself. And if needed, to respond in a public way. This morning, are you ready to put on your Lord in baptism? Have you heard the message of the gospel that has produced faith in your heart, a conviction that the things here are true, that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you willing to turn from your sins and repentance, to confess the name of Jesus, and to die with him in the watery grave of baptism, immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins? If you've been contemplating that decision, and if you're ready this morning, I know that there are folks in this room who would be honored to assist you in that wonderful first step in your Christian life. This morning, if you need the prayers of this loving family of God, can we strengthen you? Can we pray for strength? Can we encourage you? Can we ask God's forgiveness on your behalf? We'd be honored to do that. But listen, this is personal. God wants you and me to take this seriously and to know that he loves us. His promises are for us. If we can assist you, come to the front while we stand and sing together.